0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians 2 once again, the kenosis passage. Kind of funny because the word kenosis isn't actually there, but we call it the kenosis passage. The verb is kanao, and we make a noun out of it when we talk about Jesus and his kenosis. Uh, But he did empty himself. "...have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. so that's where we are. It's a powerful paragraph and uh, we're having some We're learning some good things here in this paragraph. Before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, uh, dedicating our time for the process of learning, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for this time together and calling upon your faithfulness to set aside distractions to pr- protect us. Put a hedge on every side, Father, so whatever side Satan tries to come from, he's, he's thwarted, Father, because we're here tonight in the name of Jesus Christ to receive instruction. Bless our time and bless our study. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, microphone ready to go. So uh, we can take a lead off question. Uh, one that came by email. We can start with that. Um. Bill sent me an email. He said, I was doing a word search on Theos today. Came across something peculiar. Matthew 2.12 reads, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. While the English has by God, there's no mention of God in the Greek text. Could you explain this to me? So yeah, when you do a search for Theos, and sure enough, there's no Theos in uh, Matthew 2.12. So um, that happens a lot uh, where uh, words, things are understood, but they're not actually conveyed in the Greek. Uh, there's uh, Greek is a kind of language in which things can be left out and they're, they're supplied by the hearer, they're supplied by the thinker. And so, yes, having been warned. And if you'll notice, the words by God are italicized in the New American Standard, and that's a clue right there. NASB, New King James, um, NIV, Holman, most of these modern English print Bibles will do that and they'll use italics to indicate that those literal words are not in either the Hebrew or the Greek, but they're supplied. They're supplied by the translator to try to convey it. And so literally it's just crematis uh, so having been warned, kath anar via dream, uh, you know, not to return to Herod. So uh, clearly, you know, it wasn't a fallen angel sending him that dream. Clearly it had to have been God that that sent that dream. So uh, I don't mind the helping words that are there. And and that's what that's about. And then we also had a discussion on Sunday related to uh, Acts chapter 8 and the discussion about the Holy Spirit. How is it that somebody can get saved and not receive the Holy Spirit? And uh, it's a marvelous question and you encounter it several times in the book of Acts. I, I made some notes this afternoon from Acts 5-12, Acts 6-6, Acts 8.17, 17 14-3, and 19-6. And in all those cases you have hands, you have the hands of the apostles. Sometimes it's Peter and John, sometimes it's Paul, sometimes it's, it's one of the other apostles. But the hands, laying on of hands. And uh, so when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Notice it doesn't say gospel, it says the word of God. They sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Alright? So how is it? Because when I got saved I got the Holy Spirit. When you got saved you got the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of the church age. When you're saved in the church age you receive the Holy Spirit. So why, why don't these guys have the Holy Spirit? See? And the secret is, or the answer is, uh, in all these early chapters here throughout the book of Acts you're talking about people that got saved before the church age. Okay, Now this narrative event is happening in Acts chapter 8 and Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2, but if they were saved prior to that, that means they're Old Testament believers. And so it's a very interesting, it's unique in all of human history whereby you have believers, born again believers, Old. we call them today Old Testament believers. They wouldn't call themselves that back then, they were just believers, right? But then what happens when they're saved and the church begins, okay, and so stewardship is is temporarily taken from Israel and is given to the body of Christ. But now you got a bunch of believers, right? Paul encountered some in Ephesus, and he said, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you got saved?" And they said, uh, "We don't know if there even is a Holy Spirit, <laughs> you know." And Paul goes, "Oh wow, we got to fix your doctrine here." And in every case, the answer is not to get them saved a second time. You can't get saved a second time. The answer is not to you know, take Old Testament believers and give them a New Testament gospel, but you do need to give them the information about Jesus and what He did to fulfill the Old Testament uh, prophecies and how He died, how He rose again, how He ascended. And then once they get that information, they can identify with the body of Christ. And I call it either graduation or matriculation. You know, you go from your undergraduate program to a graduate school, something of that nature. So an Old Testament believer then crosses into the church age when they identify with Jesus as the Christ. And so the role of the Holy Spirit, or the role of the apostles at that time then was to give them that doctrine, give them that teaching, and then to baptize them and that's what happened with this crowd here, they got baptized. And even Simon got baptized. And uh, so they get baptized. And what happens when they're baptized? They're identified with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as an Old Testament believer getting baptized, they're identified with the church age, the apostles lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, Now that can't happen today. Nobody today, you're not going to come face-to-face with an Old Testament believer today. (laughs) Because that means they had to have been alive and gotten saved 2,000 years ago, and that's just not going to happen. So everybody that gets saved today is in, permanently indwelled with the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation. So does that make sense? Alright. And that happens again and again and again and again uh, when when crowds are met like that. I think that's the, what happened to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. I believe Paul was saved in his childhood. And he talks about that, how the Scriptures can lead you to salvation as a young child. But then he got wrapped up in arrogance in, in his Pharisee school and became a huge, you know, uh crusader for for pharisaical judaism and uh, he, so on the damascus road he didn't have to get saved all over again but he had to know who it was that's why he said who are you lord okay and and he needed that information to bring him from an old testament believer to a new testament believer and uh, that's the acts 9 damascus road experience so all right anyway that's the question there we have uh new questions tonight perhaps all right, we're going to cross the aisle. we got two over here on this side, and then we'll come back to that side if we have time. So uh, Eliezer, and then uh, Carmen.
1: My question is also about being saved, and uh, the famous reference to Acts 16.31, where mm-hmm. uh, the context is a Philippine jailer um, in the context of uh, uh, really fear and trembling just because pr- the prisoners are out, and there's this episode that is happening. Mm -hmm. And then um, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. My question is, saved from what? At least in that context, it seems to me that he's probably uh, going to die and uh, um, he's worried that he's going to die. And so probably that. No, I wouldn't take it that way. But but it's commonly used to say, uh, saved from your sins. You know, it's a very commonly used text for saved from our sins. But uh, in reading the context, it seems to me that uh, the saved from sins doesn't seem to jump out right away. How how might uh, okay work? yeah yeah no At I can answer that to your understanding how does that right refer to yeah because yeah, the word saved, saved
0: can apply to saved from your sins you know the phase one salvation where you you're not going to go to hell when you die. And then it also can refer to the ongoing salvation in in sanctification experience where you're saved from sin temptations. Ultimately, you have saved from the presence of sin when you're face-to-face with Jesus Christ and physical death. And then the one saved from physical danger. And that's the one that... Now, I think in the the context of Acts 16.31, Paul and Silas are in jail and um, there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison house were shaken. All the doors were open. Everyone's chains were unfastened. Uh, but I think that ends. I don't think that continues. And so the jailer wakes up. He sees the prison doors open. But I don't think the, the shaking is still happening. I don't think the, the fear is still present. I don't think it's still a, a fear that he himself is going to die. Now, he'll probably be executed by the Roman government for losing his prisoners. That's a different question. Um, but when the uh, and so he drew out his sword. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But, you know, that's that's serious, right? I was a jailer for eight years and I did never lost one. There was never a successful escape from Stalag 13 when I was working there. But um, anyway, had it happened, I wouldn't have had to kill myself. The punishment was a lot less in my day and age. Um, but Paul cries out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And then he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, what does he mean when he says, what must I do to be saved? Okay? And, and we can assume this, we can assume that, but I think in the context, Paul's answer gives away what he was asking about. He's talking about eternal salvation. Now, why might he have been talking about eternal salvation? I, my suspicion is, is because prior to the uh, events of the earthquake and all that um, they were teaching doctrine they were they were witnessing and uh, as it says here the, Paul and Silas were praying singing hymns of praise to God the prisoners were listening to them I suspect the jailers were listening to them as well and that this particular Philippian jailer was also listening and so um, the what must I do to be saved I think is the follow-up to what the message had been earlier in the night and so when Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, he's answering the question there that this is an unbeliever who wants to know about God and wants to know about, about eternal life. And, and so I, I do fully accept this as a gospel uh, event. And, uh, and, and I've always taught it that way. So, all right? And then we'll bring uh, up here three more rows. Carmen had a question. And then we can cross the aisle.
2: Yeah, uh, since we speak about the Holy Spirit, I was wondering in Matthew three verse sixteen, when, when uh, right after Jesus got baptized, then the Spirit was Spirit of God descended on as a dove right. on Jesus. So he was full full of the Holy Spirit before that, right?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. In the Old so, Testament, before Pentecost, before the Church Age, uh, the Holy Spirit would come occasionally upon prophets. Uh, occasionally upon uh, judges, for example, uh, Samson, when the Spirit, Holy Spirit came upon him, that's when he got his great strength uh, and those kind of things. So the Holy Spirit um, is usually spoken of as coming upon. And the same thing happens here because the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and comes upon him, lighting upon him. And then the voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So kind of a neat text. It has Trinity, right? You have God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father's voice. Uh, And so all three are are right there. Um, But this is not the church age, so it's not the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not like what you and I have with a spiritual gift and in the church age position. Uh, But it is more, because Jesus was an Old Testament prophet. So it was the, the Spirit coming upon him to empower him for his earthly ministry.
2: An additional question was uh, since I have a background of the charismatic movement, uh-huh. it always confused me that depends on how we do things and what we do. Mm-hmm. We can dampen the Holy Spirit or we can cause him to be more active. How is that? Oh, is that how they teach it in the yeah, charismatic like, okay, church? Like for example, when they sing, all of a sudden someone says, I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. When Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally more there you know and i think that's that's what it was really i'm I'm usually
0: pretty skeptical i mean i i I don't emotions are so vulnerable to be manipulated and Mm -hmm. people's feelings and i and i've known actually i knew a guy i worked with him and he was he was tragically heartbroken that he couldn't speak in tongues and he felt like a loser a loser christian for not speaking in tongues so he faked it one night he totally faked it. He that just babbled ridiculous. and gibbered and whatever. And and when the night was over and he came home and, and and the pastor was all excited, everyone was you know celebrating all happy, happy. Well, he went home and he knew two things. He knew that he wasn't really speaking in tongues; so he was faking it. And he also knew that that prophet was not a prophet because if he was a real prophet, he would have known that he was faking it all night long. Yeah, exactly. So he knew those two things, and he just he walked away. and Said he he could never be a Pentecostal or, or a charismatic ever again in that. So, no, um, they, yeah, they, they manipulate some other scriptures, and they, they take things out of context, and it's like, grieve not the Spirit, quench not the Spirit, uh, resist not the Holy Spirit, and those are legitimate warnings. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, but that's not what the, the charismatics are talking about when they're talking about what they talk about with the, I call it the spectacular flavor of, Chris, of Christianity, and and my faith doesn't share that spectacular
2: uh And, then, and a lot of uh, countries like Africa the the, the Catholic mm-hmm. church is really embracing the charismatic movement and more and more yeah more roman catholicism
0: more. is finding a, a a branch of within them that's that's resonating with mm-hmm. with pentecostals
2: like Reinhard Bonnke for example was mm-hmm. huge in Africa just retired from that
0: mm-hmm. yep.
2: i saw him in zurich and there was crazy people came with a wheelchair one day and the next day after they got healed Mm-hmm. They came back with a wheelchair.
0: <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: And my husband almost drove drove us into death. He was so uh, upset and confused. Mm-hmm. What was real and what was not.
0: Right, and and this common. I think a lot of people. You're not the only one. A lot of folks uh, here at Austin Bible Church have come from the, the more spectacular branch of of Christianity, and uh, and so that's good. especially because they get grounded in what the Bible really says, and then they're able to kind of replace former practices with the reality of what the Word of God says. Yeah, that's a blessing. All right, did we have a question on this side too? Ah, back there in the corner and then Lewis. Yeah. All right. This is just a real quick follow-up. As far as Old Testament saints being brought into the church age, Uh uh-huh. Does that then adjust what judgment they will face? Yes, every every member that becomes a part of the body of Christ is is a part of the bride, and, and at the rapture will stand at the, at the bema at the judgment seat of Christ. And think about it: how many Old Testament saints were so wrapped up in their arrogance, like Paul, but they didn't accept Jesus as the Christ? So they're still saved. You don't you can't lose your salvation, but they died and they have their eternal destiny. Uh, that's a part of the house of Israel as an Old Testament believing Jew or an Old Testament believing Gentile when they could have crossed into the church age and become a part of the royal family of God. And so that the, they, they're going to be the very sad ones that don't stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They come at the resurrection of life judgment Revelation chapter 20 and they're going to see believers, church age saints sitting there on thrones with Christ and give, receiving judgment and they could have been on those thrones as church age saints, but they rejected the uh, they rejected Jesus as the Christ. So they remain Old Testament believers because you can't lose your salvation. But they remain Old Testament believers with an eternal destiny with the house of Israel instead of the royal family of God. Just for my own clarification, so I know going further into my study, um, if you one if you received the Holy Spirit, then you're brought into you were brought into the church age right and therefore if you didn't receive the holy spirit you were still considered an old testament saint yes you don't go before the the, the Bamasi judgment correct okay all right correct. thank you yeah old testament believers get resurrected in revelation chapter 20 after the tribulation yeah all right lewis you get our concluding question tonight the grand finale it better be good
1: <sighs> okay um Something that I wasn't able to figure out exactly. The stretch of James two eighteen
0: through twenty. Okay.
1: Verse nineteen is supposed to be a refutation refutation of this hypothetical argument in eighteen. And I didn't get it exactly.
0: It's a refutation of a, of a hypothetical argument. Oh, in the in the chapter. Verse eighteen. Chapter? Yeah. 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 Well, in terms of faith, it's it's an argument against what? I'm not really sure. <laughs> oh. Okay. That's I'm it. not really sure either. I mean, I had to go look at the comments and go, what is what is that? But well, anyway, what does it mean? I mean, what is he trying to say there in verse 19? The demons believe in shudder? Okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. One. Yeah. That's w- it? What do you mean? I mean, the demons believe. Yeah. The, in God's existence? Is that what you're talking about? So, but what's it? What's verse 19 doing there? Okay. All right. So someone may well "This is this is in the chapter where faith and works are being yeah. bashed back and forth, right?" And and this is the chapter that Martin Luther didn't like because he thought it contradicted Romans. All right. But be that as it may, okay. There is a justification by faith that is the eternal justification, and then there is our experience, our sanctification. Which, if you want to think of it as a justification by works, you can do so. But then you're going to upset people that don't like the way you're using the language. So. Um, we have faith. We also have works, and this is what he's talking about in the in the outworking of our salvation. We're gonna te- we're gonna teach this in Philippians too. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All right, it's not simply God's not content to get us saved. We're expected to live out our faith, and so in that process. Um, that's what's happening here. And then someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. Without the works, I will show you my faith by my works. And so if you have two different people there being contrasted, one that just says he's saved but you don't see any fruit of it, and one that says he's saved but you also see his fruit of it, well then that's, that's uh, a better demonstration. You believe that God is, or that God is one, or that there is a God. What's the footnote say here? There is one God. Okay. Well simply belief in God's existence is not sufficient. Yes there is a God. You can believe that there is a God but that's not going to get you to heaven. The demons believe there's a God and they hate him. <laughs> right? So just believing that there is a God is not enough. And then we'll have a passage in Hebrews 2 that says the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so God consciousness is only a step, it's how can we approach Him and on what terms do we approach Him and what is the offer of of salvation. So simply believing in the existence of God. There's an awful lot of theistic unbelievers out there. They believe there is a God um, but they're not ready to place their faith in Jesus Christ for whatever reason. Does that make sense? All right, And that's kind of how I've taught James when I've taught it. I've not taught James verse by verse, but Pastor Cliff has, Pastor Dan has, a lot of friends of mine have taught James. I've just never done it. All right. Well, let's, uh, thank you, Chris. Let's get to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And I want to pick up with this kenosis where we left off. And I don't remember what slide we were on, so I'll just hunt for it here. Yeah, something like that. All right, the kenosis hymn, that was point five, and that had an A, B, and a C. We don't know if Paul wrote this hymn or not. It, it's definitely a hymn. There's no question that it's a hymn. It's a song. It's a composition. It's, it's metrical. It's lyrical. Um, similar to other hymns that we have in the New Testament, starting with the he-who. It's a good opening line for such hymns he who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we have a song. And uh, if, if Paul's not the author of it, somebody else was, and uh, Paul then uh, incorporated it. It's kind of thought that the gospel text from First Corinthians 15 also was not original to Paul. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again according to the Scriptures. That those verses were a, a Christian hymn that is even earlier than 1 Corinthians. And if so, that's extraordinary. Because even if Paul wrote it and he wrote it for 1 Corinthians that still pegs it at 51 AD or 51-52 AD. That's very, very early. That's within 20 years of the cross. And if, if somebody earlier than Paul wrote it and Paul simply adapted it to put it in 1 Corinthians 15, that means it was even closer. You know, 5, 10, 15 years separated from the cross. And so we've got a good early testimony to the events of uh, of Jesus' life that way. And uh, so same thing here. Uh, here's a hymn. The kenosis hymn provides a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And I guess in teaching this point, I should take the time to tell you kenosis means emptying. All right? Kenosis is a noun that comes from the verb kanao, the verb that we have here in verse 7 that says, Jesus emptied himself. It's something he did. And uh, he did two things. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. Okay? And we're going to see those two primary verbs. Jesus emptied himself and he humbled himself. And then the Father is going to do two things. The Father is going to exalt him and the Father is going to bestow on him a name. And uh, we'll get to that when we get to verse 9. For this reason also, God, that's the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So Jesus did two things, the Father did two things, and these are all included in this this song. And so I call it the kenosis hymn, other uh, people call it the kenosis hymn, uh, simply referencing the emptying of our Savior. And uh, by whatever we mean by emptying, and we'll we'll be dealing with that theologically, uh, what is meant when Jesus emptied himself. When God the Son emptied himself, how did he do that? What was that about? And yet, as we go through the details on this, we see a, a beautiful, beautiful affirmation of the God-man, both both truth. He is undiminished deity, and He is true humanity, united together in one person forever. The form of God that He's had from all eternity, and then the form of man that He took in emptying Himself. And that's uh, what we deal with here. So on Sunday, we talked about His preexistence. He existed in the form of God. Not only was he in the beginning with the Word, or the Word was in the beginning with God, the Word was God. Not only was he in terms of being, but his existence was in the form of God. The morphe theu, the form of God. So um, if, if you want to paint with a fine brush and draw distinctions between being and existing, uh, there are distinctions to be found in those terms. Uh, the verb is hooparko, it's not the verb amy. And so it's there there is being, but then that being also has an existence, right? You and I have being and existence. And so um, the, the emphasis here is on existence. And his existence, his presence, his his operation, operational existence was in the form of God, the Morphe Theu, okay. And so it's disembodied. God is spirit. must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. The Father is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. The Son is spirit. Always has been. But then the Son received a body. okay, And that is different. That's different from the Father, different from the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the Father and the Holy Spirit could not uh, come to this earth as an incarnate being uh, for different reasons, but primarily, I believe, because the human nature of Jesus Christ that preceded the body of Jesus Christ. When uh, when you study that through, so in any event, uh, he existed in the form of God in Thou. and being in the form of God, then he had all the the freedom in the world to uh, to uh, to appear in the world in different ways, as burning bushes, as as pillars of fire, as clouds, as you know, there were a lot of Christophanies in the Old Testament. And, uh, and all of that he had total freedom to do uh, in, in his deity uh, simply because his existence was in Morphe Theu uh, all through that period of time. All right, but then the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And uh, from that moment on, Oh, angel of the Lord was another one. Angel of the Lord was another Christophany, another appearance of of God the Son in uh, the dynamic of interacting with angels and, uh, and with men. So he existed in the form of God, yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not regard, even though he is God, even though he is God, he is with God, he is God, he's in the form of God, he is God, very God, but he does not regard that deity status as a thing to be grasped. And that, uh, that takes some work, and I want to deal with that tonight. A grasping thing, a prize, a grabbed thing. There's, there's some things to think about with respect to grasping, and I'm not going to let you leave tonight until everybody grasps this, all right? he did not regard now that that right there grabs our attention cuz it's hegetamai it's the regarding verb we've already seen twice we've already seen it because it's it's a part of the lead up to this imperative we talk about not re, about regarding one another as more important than yourselves right that's regarding and so since you and i we we dealt with this in in uh, in verse 3 Uh, thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves. And so that idea now is what we're dealing with in uh, in verse 6, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's not considering himself, he's considering others. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And if you think about it, what was Eve doing when she grasped the, uh, the apple? What was Adam doing? What was Satan doing? The whole temptation, think about this now, Genesis 3, verses 5 and 6. Equality with God. I mean, if you think about it, Adam and Eve are in the image of God already. In the image and likeness of God, he created them. And yet, what was the dissatisfaction? What was the sense that something was lacking, something was deficient? I want more. I'm not content with what he's given. And I want what he's denied. (laughs) He said, don't eat from that tree. So never mind the fact that he's given you every other tree in the garden. Just one tree you can't have. And think about it. And so they reach out to grasp it. And the whole point being when Satan lies to him and says God know, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Alright, so now Jesus does not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Eve sure did. Adam sure did. You mean I can reach out and grab that? I can become like God? And it's right there? It's mine for the taking? No wonder he doesn't want me to take it. And so the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. I think that's the final key right there. That's the nail in the coffin, that wisdom. Of course it's characteristic of God, it's characteristic of Satan, it's characteristic. Um, To know good and evil is, is described there as to be like God. Anyway, Jesus does not regard equality with God a grasping thing. It's not a thing to be grabbed. It's not a thing to be claimed. It's not a thing to be obtained. In fact the the fundamental definition of God exposes the lie of Satan. His, five, his fifth I will is nonsensical. I will be like the one for whom nobody is like. I will be like the Most High God. Well, that's, by definition, that's impossible because he is, he is the unique, the one, the only. There is no one like Him. So how will you become like Him if there's no one like Him? And if you are a creature... How do you become uncreated? Too late. You're already a creature. (laughs) Okay? God is the only I am. God is the only uncaused cause of of everything else. He is the self-actualized, self-existent, the only I am in the universe. And so for a human or an angel, somebody that has a beginning, to claim that they're going to be without beginning, uh, too late. By the time you have... a a sentient awareness to be able to say such a blasphemous thing, you're already, you have had a beginning, right? So equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. And so she saw, she took. That's verse 6. She saw, and she regarded, and she took. She grasped. To use the Philippians language, she regarded, and she grasped. To use the Genesis language, she saw, she saw and she took. And she gave also her husband with her, and he took. Okay? He ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked, sewed fig leaves together, made for themselves loin coverings. And we see that. How about Isaiah 14? Let's look at these five-eye wills. Isaiah 14. And it's a taunt. It is a taunt. It is to be sung in the millennium. It uh, will not be sung in the uh, fullness of time, but it's a millennial song. And uh, in that day, verse 3 says, it will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. See, the beginning of the millennium, the the angel comes down with a chain and Satan is bound for a thousand years. And during the time of his binding, during the time that he is confined to the abyss, this uh, Israel gets to sing this taunt. And so, uh, starting with verse 4, Sheol is excited, verse 9, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the Rephaim, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones, all the great heroes from the age of legends, the Nephilim from um, before the flood. Anyway, um, verse 11, your pomp. See verse 10, they will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. You have become like us. You know what an insult that is? Because he said he was going to become like the Most High God. Well, I don't think he made it, because instead he became like these losers, right? These uh, condemned demons in the abyss. Your pomp and the music of your harps. He had a great music program and a great, you know, religious operation. Somebody comes in here and they criticize our music program. I say, okay, well, see ya. I like it. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to shale. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. Isn't that beautiful? So just lay on a bed of maggots and pull the blanket of worms over you and have a nice night. How you have fallen from heaven, Hillel ben Shachar, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, And this is the opposite of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Satan did. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. To which of the angels did he say, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of them. Satan was not entitled to that seat. Jesus was. But Satan lusted after it. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. So just being in heaven is not enough. He wants to be where the Father is, on that glorious throne above the heights of the, of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That right, it's just a self-contradictory statement. Make myself. God's not made, He is. God is not who He is because He made Himself that way. He is who he is because I am. He's always been God. He didn't make himself God. (coughs) But see, Satan doesn't believe that. Satan thinks God's a big liar like he's a big liar. And, uh, you know, liars don't trust. And, And even, you know, liars think everybody's lying. Even someone that can't lie must be lying, right? Here's Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, and Satan calls him a liar. And so um, I don't think Satan believes the I am doctrine. I don't think Satan believes that the Father has always been here. Satan believes that the Father was here before him, but he doesn't trust anything the Father says about always being here. See? Does that make sense? I mean, we can do the same thing. I'm the oldest of four siblings, so I can make up all kinds of things and tell my younger siblings about when the police dropped him off on the front porch in a basket, and mom and dad took pity on him, and we brought him into the house. You know, things like that. And they can't dispute it because, hey, I'm older, I remember, and you were, you know, you were just a baby and you don't remember. And and so, of course, you know, you're carnal and you're a liar and you make up stuff because you're trying to bug your, your siblings. But um, so think about it though. Here's Satan. And he has a creation day. He knows he's a created being. And I, and I suspect, by the way, we don't remember our birth, but these angels were created. Adam remembers his creation day. I believe angels remember their creation day. The, the Lord tells them to remember their creation day. And uh, so, okay, he gets it. El Shaddai, the Almighty, God the Father was there before him, but he doesn't believe that he's always been there and he doesn't believe that he's self-existent and he's going to prove it by becoming like him. And if he can catch the Father in one lie then he wins. Because if he catches the Father in one lie then Satan says, see? I'm a liar too. I'm like you. Okay? Anyway, a grasping thing does not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in this sense, there is a a thought that a creature might grasp divinity. A creature might earn or deserve glory, which, of course, no one does, no one can. It has to be given by grace, of course, we're, we're baptized in union with Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature, but we didn't grasp that. We didn't earn that. We didn't deserve that. That was a blessing bestowed upon us. We can think of it in those ways. We also can consider grasping on a, in a second way related to something that we already possess, but we don't flaunt it as an item of of uh, of privilege. We don't we don't wield it as a, uh, a tool of dominion over others in the sense that if you're grasping something and using it to beat somebody over the head with it, <laughs> okay, there's another idea of grasping. Because Jesus has deity. Jesus is already equal with God. But he's not grasping it and displaying it and celebrating it. In fact, he lets it go. He lets it go, and for the first advent incarnation, he for, he uh, foregoes any deity privilege, and that's what we're going to study when we see kanao as a verb. The noun for a grasping thing is a harpagmos, a harpagmos, h a r p a g m o s. That's a grasping thing. A harpagmos is a grasping thing, and this is the only place in the entire Bible that has harpagmos. Okay. Or at least in the New Testament, I forgot to check the subtitute. For most of the week, my software wasn't cooperating with me, and I got it fixed this afternoon, so I'm thankful for that. Um, so let's look at harpegmos, and let's just double check here. Philippians two six. Do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so there's harpegmos, and let's look at the word study. And here we have it. One lonely use in the New Testament in Philippians 2 6. Below that, Septuagint, no results. So it's not even used in the Septuagint. Not even used in the Septuagint. All right. That's the thing that was broken all week, was this Septuagint thing. But now it's working. In fact, it's not even used very much in the Greek classics, only three times in three verses. Not used by Philo, not used by Josephus. Eusebius uses it twice in his ecclesiastical history. But you know what? He's just quoting Philippians 2.6. <laughs> All right, so there you go. Not a common word, harpagmos. But we know what it is because it comes from harpazo. And we know what harpazo is. Harpazo is our word for rapture. It's our word for snatching. It's our word for grabbing. All right? And so harpagmos coming from harpazo. There's other cognate nouns too. There's a harpagma, M-A. It's a neuter. This is harpagmos. Anyway, it it comes from harpazo. Harpazo means to snatch. It means to grab. In the the Latin, it's rapto, right? Like a velociraptor or any other kind of a raptor that's out there, okay? And so uh, 2 Corinthians 12, we've got a lot of snatching, well, three snatching uses here in the New Testament. Harpazo probably has some Old Testament uses as well. 2 Corinthians 12, so this is to snatch, this is to grab, we get this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. But such a man was harpazoed. He was snatched up to the third heaven. Can you imagine? You're just minding your own business and the next thing you know, a hand grabs you and up you go. And you get there and you're looking around. okay? And you're not quite sure. Wow, (laughs) how did I get here? In the body, out of the body don't even know, (coughs) snatched up. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, he was caught up, snatched up, harpazoed, raptured into paradise. Okay? That's where paradise is now. Paradise used to be in Abraham's bosom. Right? Jesus told the the thief, This day you will be with me in paradise. Truly, truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Paradise used to be in Abraham's bosom, but now paradise is in the third heaven. Part of what we understand when Jesus led captivity captive, he emptied out Abraham's bosom. He took those captives from from Sheol and He brought them up to heaven in one of his uh, ascensions. And so caught up into paradise. And heard inexpressible words, inexpressible words. How cool is that? <laughs> okay, you know, before Babel there were few words, and men spoke one language. Now there's all kinds of languages and multiplied words. But what what what's, what's communication going to be like when we're in glory? Is it going to be more mind to mind? Is it going to be? Are we are we going to have capacity to communicate in ways that transcend? The, the vocalization of of, uh, of this mortal body? I don't know. But he heard inexpressible words. Somebody expressed them because he heard them. Just he can't express them. Which man is not permitted to speak. So angels, God, whatever, but is beyond the realm of humanity, these inexpressible words. So on behalf of such a man, I will boast. This is all tongue-in-cheek, of course, because Paul's talking about himself. But he steps away and talks about himself in the third person, so he can he can contrast this glorious guy with Paul the nobody that uh, in the point he's trying to make. Anyway, it's a fun text, and we dealt with it. But here's here's two places where where harpazo is used, right? Or raptō in the Greek, or in the Latin, and where we get the English word rapture. The other course is is the other passage, of course, is the rapture text of First Thessalonians four seventeen. Oh, that it were today. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So every church-age saint you know that's physically died, they've, uh, they've preceded us to glory, but they won't precede us in the resurrection. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself. So we all get to go together, right? It's like when we take communion, we say, you know, hold off until we all take it together. Um, so those that have already died and they're in heaven, they're not going to precede us. And those that are on earth at the trumpet, we're not going to precede them. We're all going to go together. The bride of Christ will go together. Jesus wants to marry an intact bride. Make sense? All right. Because he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he's going to bring all of them with every every dead church age saint that's in heaven now, my mother, all right, everyone else, they're going to come with Jesus. Now he's going to stop in the air. He's not going to land on the earth. But the, the, the believers are going to return because they're going to return to their bodies. They're going to have, those bodies will be raised and then we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Alright, so the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's why He brought them with Him. They're going to, they're going to return with Him and they're going to rise first. So the dead in Christ will rise first. So that's my mother, right? That's Mike Snyder. That's everyone, Lillian's uncles that we've been praying for, Lillian's family this week. Uh, The dead in Christ will rise first, okay? Now, I I, I pick up specifically on dead in Christ, okay? And there, there could be some other pastors. I don't include Old Testament saints here. Larkin did, others did. I don't. And Schofield didn't, and a lot and Schaefer didn't. Okay? So Moses is not raised here. Daniel is not raised here. David, all those Old Testament saints, they're not raised at the rapture. They're raised at the second advent. They're raised in Revelation chapter twenty. Okay? But it's the dead in Christ that rise first. Those who are Christ that is coming. Then we who are alive and remain, so we're still physically alive on this planet, will be Harpazo. Caught up. Together with them, the dead in Christ that rose first. And so them and us are going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Alright? How cool is this? Do we get this? we see how this works? Now as I read this, you want to combine it with 1 Corinthians 15, you want to understand it because this, this mortal body wouldn't handle being launched up to the stratosphere in, in, in that kind of time. We have to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and we will, and then snatched up. Okay? Um, 1 Thessalonians doesn't talk about transformation and 1 Corinthians doesn't talk about snatching. You put both passages together and you get the twinkling of an eye transformation followed by the snatching. The harpazo that we see here. Alright. So uh, my question for you tonight then just to be a little ornery is um, how much time does it take for a then to be expressed in uh, verse 17? The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain. Okay, is that, is that a split second later, a nanosecond later? A twinkling of an eye later? Or is it, I mean, how could it be could it be a minute later? Could it be ten minutes later? It still would be then. See? Um, you know, my son was born, then my daughter was born, then my second son was born, then my second daughter was born. You know, then just shows a sequence and gives really no indication of you know, a, a split second later or or whatever. What if it's an hour later? What if it's 24 hours? I mean, I'm not saying it is. But what if? Right? The urn with my mother's ashes is sitting in my office right now. And um, we haven't really decided what to do with it. And we're kind of waiting. We'll have a second urn to go with it when dad dies. and then And then we'll do something with both urns. But for the time being, Since 2012, my mother's ashes are sitting there in my office. And when the dead in Christ rise first, I'm probably going to be in my office. That's where I am the majority of the hours in any given week. I'm going to be studying, and mom's going to be right there. Wow. And the dead in Christ rise first. Then, a second, a minute, an hour. Just what would that be like for an hour with the dead in Christ walking this earth? I don't know. Just an idea. Um, then. There's a lot of, uh, you study wins and thens and, and you realize, you know, there's some ambiguity in some ways. But we're going to be caught up. Caught up. It is uh, an active voice. It is a verb, or it's a passive for us. We are being caught. God is doing the catching. Okay? It's the power of God that snatches us and, and, and propels us uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that's what it is. It's a grabbing thing. It's a snatching, grabbing thing. And a hapagmos is, is, is a snatching, grabbing thing. So as a noun that comes from a verb, what do we think of it as? It's either the action of snatching, or it's the result of snatching. It could be thought of as the booty, the plunder, the the, the, the snatched thing. Okay, um, Either the thing that is grasped, which is kind of how the English translation says, regard with equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do not regard equality with God a grasping thing, a snatching thing. I don't know. I like the phrase a thing to be grasped. That's, that's fine. That works for me. But if you already hold it, and it's not a grasping thing, then that means you're willing to let it go. See what I'm saying? You're not prying it from his cold, dead fingers. Okay? It's not a grasping thing. And so, it's the ultimate of regarding the other as more important than yourself. That the divine privileges. He, he left the ivory palaces. To come to this world of woe, to hold on to the privilege, to hold on to the entitlement. He's worthy, worthy of all worship, honor, and praise, worthy of, of everything imaginable, but he lets it all go and he empties himself. That's the point. And in emptying himself, this is the ultimate act of humility ever expressed, ever conceivably expressed. There's no greater act that, that's even conceivable to go from infinitely glorious to human, (laughs) right? To babe in a manger. That's emptying himself. And uh, that's what we're looking at here. So Jesus Christ emptied himself. The verb is kanao. K-E-N-O-O. It's so got an Omicron Omega ending, so the short O followed by the long O. The verb is Kana'o. And we've, we've had a recent study on Kenos because we had empty conceit in verse 3. Do not, uh, remember that? Empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. So we've had a, a form of Kenos there. Uh, But kanao is, it's only used five times in the New Testament to empty something, to make something empty, or to make something void. To make something void. And uh, when you have emptiness, in in the Old Testament it's sometimes translated vanity. That's the Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. It's all empty. It's all void. There's There's nothing to it. And so on Sunday morning we're gonna look at Romans 4.14, 1 Corinthians, and they're all Pauline. Every New Testament used, there's five of them. Romans 4.14, 1 Corinthians 1 2 Corinthians 9 3, and our passage, the Kenosis passage of Philippians 2 7. Um, and in, and when we talk about what's empty, this gets us into some pretty deep theology because we talk about how grace and uh, faith work, how um, we 're not uh does 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 faith nullify the law does it make the law void? What happens when faith is exercised and let me just grab romans four fourteen because that's i 'll give you something to chew on for the four days between now and Sunday. If uh, those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is cannot owed. Faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. All right? If legalism can, if you can earn and deserve it through legalism, then faith has been made void. Faith has been cannot owed, emptied, and the promise is nullified. The promise preceded the law. The promise was given to Abraham 430 years before the law. So if law gives the inheritance then we just emptied faith. What's the point in faith? Who cares if Abraham believed God and it was reckoned in his righteousness? Law can get you there. Okay, so You follow the logic there? okay? Because we know law can't get you there. Anyway, that's, that's the idea. So being made void, being set aside as nothing being set aside as worthless, being just uh, stipulated as there's no point. But that's what Jesus did for himself. He emptied himself. All right, well then you can wrap your mind around that between now and Sunday. Father, I thank you for kenosis. I thank you for our Savior. And he emptied himself. Of course, he didn't stop being God. We reject any definition of, of kenosis that means that he stopped being God. And some people try to defend that view. Over the centuries they've tried to defend that, well, He used to be God. He stopped being God when He became a man. No, no, He's still God. He is God and man. He's the mediator. He is the God-man that can mediate and bring us to the Father. And so we want to understand this. We want to uh, grasp in in some ways, um, these are inexpressible words, where our finite mind is trying to grasp how He can be undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever. And yet that's what this very passage here details. So uh, bless our study, help us to see with the emptying and what it signifies and uh, the glory of what our Savior was pleased to do. Pleased to humble himself. The ultimate humiliation of humanity, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Father, uh, bless our studies in this regard and we thank You for our Savior for all that He is, for all that He did. We give You the praise and glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.